Welcome to Eurodial University with Jeff Snyder, the essayists at Real Clear Markets. We're going to be going over an article that he penned there about the other important shadow money consideration. Whenever we talk about shadow money and the things that takes place outside of the mainstream press, we talk about repo very often, right? And why we need collateral for repo. But there's another even bigger, is it bigger, Jeff? Even bigger market that we don't talk about too often, but maybe we should. And that's the derivative market that needs collateral as well. Jeff, just give the audience, set the stage. We've been talking about collateral a lot in our shows. It's very important. Whenever we do talk about it, we say there's not enough. And one way we can know about it is if we look at the repo market. We're going to look at that other big market, derivatives. Why is collateral important overall? Yeah, you need it for both. You need it to transact in in these interbank markets because without it, it just doesn't happen. I mean, this is not the pre-crisis era where people did you know unsecured transactions in federal funds or just euro dollar deposits. We live in the age of mistrust and untrust and whatever you know negative uh, negative description we can put on these things, which is you know you got to have collateral, and uh, you have collateral for both both parts of it, the repo market as well as derivative markets, and there's. I'm sort of leaning to the, you know, there's really no hard evidence or there's really not enough hard evidence to say, but I'm really, I really think that the Forex market has surpassed repo in terms of its importance in the global exchange of these various balance sheet mechanics in Forex markets, you know, currency swaps, they're collateralized too. There's all, they're even collateralized more interesting ways than maybe just straight up repo does. And in many ways, some of these currency swaps are nothing more than synthetic repo to begin with which goes into another, you know, of of our favorite topics that we're getting into here, which is balance sheet constraints. In fact, those two things together kind of in the the, um, most succinct way possible sums up the last 15 years. Balance sheet constraint and lack of collateral. And here we have them intersecting in one one key part of the market. One of the most important charts that we don't bring it up very often, but if we wanted to convince people that the global economy fell into something of a depression in 2008 would be the derivatives chart, right? We have many different examples, but the derivatives, a form of money that from the 1970s in the United States, we have graphs, I believe that go back to the 1970s. I'm not sure. Or the 1990s. Derivatives is the nineties, unfortunately. Okay. In the BAS for the world does go back until the late 1970s. And you can see an exponential surge, just like in the U.S. version, where we're looking just at the U.S. big four banks. We see an exponential surge until 2008 and then stagnation going ever since. And they break it down by different markets. You mentioned foreign exchange. There's also interest rate swaps. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting one, Emil. The forex derivatives are the one that has bucked the trend. So I, you know, you look at it in isolation, just Forex derivatives, they've continued to rise, which to me tells me that as the repo market has utterly collapsed, and uh, at least the visible repo that we can see, that maybe a lot of banks around the world who are balance sheet constrained switched into Forex and, and moved into synthetic repo rather than cash repo. One day we have to do a show where we go through your periodic table of money. You remember, I love that article that you did. This, it's, it's related to the zoo and it's the different forms of money and how we have M1, M2, M3. 
And then we get down to where the radioactive ones, the plutonium, uranium, the funny named ones, and that's where the, the derivatives would be. It's kind of, it is money, kind of, but it's important. You can't use it. You can't run the world without it. How important is it? Do we count every piece of it, every nominal gross value of it? Is that really how much money there is? No, but where do you draw the line? We have to do a show about that. And let's get back on topic. Basically, we're reading off a Real Clear Markets piece from May 6, 2022. The title is, It Isn't the Fed's Theater of Rate Hikes That Got Us Here. And you tell us about a, what, derivatives, the central clearing party, the supplementary leverage ratio. Tell us quickly about those two key issues, because we're going to then pivot to a Federal Reserve paper whereby they investigate the fact that interest rate swaps or derivative are negative, and they're going to look at this central counterparty clearings and the uh, supplementary lever- leverage ratio. Yeah, that's really the issue is low and negative interest rate swap spreads. And an interest rate swap spread is the quoted fixed leg of a plain vanilla interest rate swap compared to the same maturity U.S. Treasury. So if we're talking about a 30-year uh, interest rate swap. We're going to we're going to compare the, the, the fixed rate part of it to the nominal yield on the U.S. Treasury. And by all principles of general finance, the swap spread, the, the, the swap rate, the, the fixed rate swap rate should be higher than the nominal Treasury because there's additional risk beyond the U.S. Treasury. The U.S. Treasury is considered to be risk free in terms of credit as well as liquidity risk, whereas the counterparty to the swap is a, another financial company. Obviously, that's more of a risk than the United States federal government, although some people would argue that point that that's that's not the point here. Markets take the U.S. Treasury as the safest, most liquid. But ever since October of 2008, the 30-year swap spread, apart from a couple weeks in 2013, has been consistently negative, which means either the market looks at the federal government over a 30-year period as more risky than these financial counterparties on the other side of a swap, or something else is going on here that constrains the market's ability to price these swaps, quote unquote, the way they should be, or at least the way they used to be before <clears throat> the 2008 monetary crisis. To commemorate the 10-year anniversary of these interest rate swaps going negative, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York got some people together and they wrote a paper called Negative Swap Spreads. And those people are Boyarchenko, Gupta, Steele, and Yen. And Jeff, to their credit, they made some observations which are accurate and important. What were they? What did they, what did they convey to the audience? Well, to, to, to avoid getting into the weeds here, going too mm-hmm. far into the weeds, what they basically said is normally when you would see swap spreads fall like this, it would trigger the profit response of money dealers where they would say, aha, arbitrage. The market is pricing these interest rate swaps as if they're less risky than the government. There's money, there's profit to be made in here. We're going to swoop in, take the other side of the transaction, and then buy through nothing more than dealer market forces. The swap spread will go back to normal because everybody agrees that the swap spread is too low. And what these, what they found was that, yes, lo and behold, there is something constraining dealers in their ability to police these spreads such that when they start to fall and go low, they don't come back up in the way that they're supposed to and then create the, the rest of the markets, the forces that, that bring spreads back into the way they're supposed to. So we're missing dealers who are constrained in some fashion from making swap spreads 
you know, as we talked about in a previous episode, maintaining these hierarchies and marketplaces that have broken down without dealers, the study basically came to the conclusion that yes, dealers are constrained. Now, the issue that we have is why are they constrained? They, the authors of the study have their own view, which is a partial view. And in in my opinion, a very incomplete one. That was, we should have been screaming glory, hallelujah. Yes, thank you. Finally, a decade later, there's an official paper saying dealers are constrained. Agreed. That's what we've been saying. Thank you. But as often happens with these reports, they come, they come to it with their own worldview and they cannot break out of the geocentric worldview of the monetary system, whereby the earth is at the center or the Federal Reserve is at the center of the solar system and everything spins around it, as opposed to putting the sun, the, the system. Well, I don't even know what the sun represents, but it's definitely heliocentric. I know that. But no, they come at it from a geocentric point of view. And this is where the central counterparty clearing and the supplementary leverage ratio and other burdens come into being, where they say the dealers have trouble. There are extra costs now that have been implemented now. And that's why these swap spreads remain negative and presumably will remain negative. Yeah, that's usually the go-to explanation from anything along these lines is that it must be some form of regulation or government interaction simply because they assume that dealers are always profit maximizing rather than constrained for their own reasons. And the boogeyman has always been, ever since it was implemented, Basel III. And Basel III created a number of restrictions, uh, including the SLR or supplementary leverage ratio which does make balance sheet capacities a little bit more expensive, a little bit more rigid. But as we talk about all the time, if there was opportunity to be made, low risk opportunity to be made, dealers wouldn't care one bit about the SLR. They'd be falling all over themselves to pocket the spread. What's missing is that dealers don't act on nominal profit opportunities. They act on risk adjusted opportunities. So if they see a profit opportunity, but think, If I go after it, I might get stuck on the hook for something, so I'm not going to go after it. That's not Basel III. That's that's some other form of constraint. But, you know, they raise the idea that, hey, the SLR has made balance sheet capacities more uh, more expensive, more uh, constrained. And they they put together a lot of nice data that shows, uh, you know, at various levels of SLR, how much additional profit dealers are obviously demanding to engage in this arbitrage opportunity with interest rate swaps. And there is obviously a correlation, but again, they're missing the fact that this is not an exhaustive explanation for why dealers are actually constrained. So then the good side, yes, they're recognizing the the issue with swap spreads going down is something else, but them staying down is dealer balance sheet constraints. So in a very narrow sense, it was a decent paper from 2018, but it doesn't connect all the other dots. And there's three, there's actually three more dots that they need to connect. The other one is that dealer balance sheet constraints in a big picture are the reason why swap spreads start to go lower to begin with. And it isn't an accident that the study actually limited its focus to when the SLR came into being, even though, as you said, Emil, they realize it's the 10th anniversary. So why were swap spreads so low before the SLR ever showed up half a decade after the swap spreads went negative and low in the other terms to begin with, which goes back to dealer uh, balance sheet constraints that have nothing to do with the SLR. So big picture, 
you've got the dealer balance sheet constraints. And then the other thing they didn't get into at all is collateral because uh, not just because not just uh, in, the, in the modern era or not just in the post-crisis era, but even before then, if you're getting into interest rate swaps on either side of the transaction, these are usually collateralized, usually mark to market. But ever since 2008, most of uh, these interest rate swaps and derivative markets have been, po- have been uh, put onto central clearinghouse counterparties, which means that just to participate in the swaps market, you have to post initial margin collateral as well as maintain collateral as interest rates, or as uh, depending on what the derivative contract is. As prices change of these contracts, you got to post more or less collateral along the way. Um, and the initial collateral has to be U.S. Treasuries, most by and large. So what is constraining dealers in terms of interest rate swaps? The paper rightly notes dealer balance sheet capacities are restraining dealers. When interest rate swaps start to fall and maybe get lower negative, when there's other factors as well, including collateral, because if there's an arbitrage opportunity on a low swap spread to go after it, you have to post at least some kind of initial margin on the central on the CCP to participate to begin with. And if you're already collateral constrained on top of balance sheet constrained, you have to be given a much, 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 much larger profit opportunity so that the risk adjusted profit basis makes it worth trying to, it makes it worth using precious collateral as well as precious balance sheet space. But the issue here is precious collateral and precious balance sheet space, not the SLR, nor really the swap spread. As we've said all along, the swap spread is nonsense, but it is important nonsense because it tells us that the more constrained that dealers are in terms of balance sheet capacity, as well as collateral, the deeper negative these swap spreads will go. So if we see, if we see, <laughs> if we see swap spreads falling lower than they already are, that tells us unequivocally, dealer balance sheet constraints, collateral constraints, which brings us to the punchline, which is where we are today. They're constrained, right? The swap spreads are heading negative. The 31 for sure, did I say negative? More negative. Now, what about the five and 10? They did a little bit of uh, flips hijinks recently. I know the 30, 30 30-year swap spread definitely signaling trouble, constraint, costs, lack of money. What about five and 10? What what are those signals saying? They are similar, just not as obvious. So the five-year spread is the highest positive, which is still nowhere near where it should be or where where it would be normally. Um, Yes, there was a little bit of a an upturn, which I mean, this, these swaps are, are very noisy day to day to begin with. Uh, consistent that was uh, back when the the last FOMC meeting in the month of April with a fifty basis rate point rate rate hike. There was a one day hiccup in the swap market, which is that's perfectly normal. But going back to last December, ever since the euro dollar futures curve first inverted, these swap spreads have been behaving the opposite of where they should, given the fact that the Fed is hiking rates and they're expected to keep them keep rates high. When the market is saying, no, dealers are balance sheet and collateral constrained, swap spreads are going in the wrong direction. Even the, even the five-year and 10-year maturities are slightly lower. So they're compressing a little bit ever since last December, whereas, as you said, Emil, the 30-year spread is more obviously compressing, when by all accounts, they should be decompressing. They should be moving in the opposite direction, and we know why they're compressing. You know, in one sense, this, the, this Federal Reserve paper from 2018 
just confirms what we already know, which is swap spreads are a deep financial indication of collateral constraint as well as balance sheet constraints. Exactly. Those last two points, right? The it's the interest rate, negative interest rate swap spread is a arbitrage opportunity, meaning it's risk-free, but not cost-free. And what are those costs? As you've been saying, collateral and balance sheet capacity, which is a very, very fancy Eurodollar University way of saying money, money that's available for the rest of the economy to function. And if that money is constrained, which is what we're observing, then we should not expect our economy to take off. And you that's, know, Emil, yes. it's kind of no different. If you say you put yourself in the shoes of somebody in the 1920s, for example, and you see some kind of price, uh, uh, some price in some financial market represent a, an absolutely gorgeous arbitrage opportunity, but you didn't have actual cash in your pocket to go after it. You would have to just sit there and stare at it and say, <laughs> damn, what could have been if I only I had the cash to do it? That's the only difference. The only difference is in the 21st century euro dollar system, the cash to go after the arbitrage opportunity is not physical Federal Reserve notes. It's balance sheet capacity and collateral. So if you don't have these key cash functions, you just have to sit there and say, oh, my God, that huge spread there. If only I could go after it, but I don't have the money to do it. And the key for those of us who are not living on Wall Street and we don't care about bankers, whether or not they have cash, is it affects us in the real economy. Because if they don't have cash for risk-free returns, well, how much cash are they going to have cash, money, credit for the rest of the economy? Well, it's been 15 years, not much. Jeff, the other point I wanted to make is you highlighted it, but I just want to re-underline it again. They started their study in 2014. Okay, that's just... As I if mean, nothing interesting happened before 2014. Yeah, what happened between <laughs> October 2008 and 2014? Nothing? Nothing? I don't know. Yeah, and the, I don't the know, other part Jeff. they omitted in, 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 in doing that is that these swap spreads move up and down a little bit at a time. They don't normalize, but they do move up. They compress and decompress in mm -hmm. tandem with all of these other markets we talk about. So if we see swap spreads compressing, regardless of whether they should or not, it's, it's almost guaranteed you're going to see the euro dollar futures curve inverted. You're going to see the treasury curve flatten, maybe inverted. It's not just one market or the other. It's all of these things. And what's important about this derivative market, especially interest swap spreads, is they give you a sense of exactly what is missing, what's wrong, because it's lack of money. It's lack of balance sheet capacity and lack of capacity or lack of collateral that leads to the situation. So if swap spreads are decompressing or compressing and the yield curve is flattening and the euro dollar futures curve is doing it's what it's doing and the U.S. dollar is screaming higher. We know what's really going on here. All these things together tell us a very comprehensive picture of what is actually happening, not what's supposed to be happening, but what is actually happening inside the monetary system. It would be nice if somebody in Congress was watching this show and then these were the sort of questions that were posed to the Federal Reserve officials instead of, well, what does the unemployment rate look like? Phew. All right, Jeff. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, Emil.